0: Here you are in Times Square following an usher across the plush carpeting that lines the aisles of the Earl Carroll Theater. You escorted yourself through the lobby where some taxidermied African animals were on display. and Now you're led between gaudy rows of occupied wooden seats to the one you purchased for 25 cents. The moving picture is about to start, so the highly decorated walls are only dimly illuminated. The theater is full of families from all over New York, here to see the newest anticipated hit film by the documentarians Martin and Osa Johnson. Simba, King of the Beasts. The film's bright and pulpy poster promised exotic drama and animal violence that was sure to be popular. The lights go out as soon as you found your seat, and so begins the film that will change your life. Sure enough, the screen's curtains frame moving images of a world that seems so different from your own. Like a portal into Africa, the screen displays exactly what the posters promised, images of the real thing. In a report on the film, the Chicago Daily Tribune wrote,
1: Mr. and Mrs. Johnson met lions, lots and lots of lions in their native haunts. Sounds thrilling, believe me, it is thrilling. It shouldn't take so much courage to face a lion with a dependable gun. Mrs. Johnson, by the way, is quite pretty enough to be in the movies, Hollywood movies, and she chose Simba. Don't be selfish and leave the children at home.
0: This is the first time you had ever seen megafauna in action. A real living lion in his actual natural habitat, in total control of his surroundings. Simba, the king of beasts, whose prowess can only be challenged by the incontestable strength of Western mankind. This was the experience of nearly each patron of the Earl Carroll Theater viewing the premiere of Simba, King of the Beasts. Now, Simba was an immediate hit. They called it a groundbreaking travelogue. And the images of foreign and faraway lands had such a cultural impact that we still feel it in pop culture today. You know, hakuna matata and all that. One of the original taglines used to advertise Simba was, you'll talk about it for a lifetime. Simba's popularity shows how important looking at animals became in American culture. Watching the Johnsons films suddenly let Americans experience exciting worlds they had never seen before. And we still love this. I mean, who hasn't watched Planet Earth? It's an animal
2: you can't help but look up to. But what do we really know about
0: giraffes? But how did nature documentaries become so beloved by Americans? To find an answer, you need to ask a different question first. Rather than how, who? And the answer, of course, is Osa Johnson and her husband, Martin. But where did they come from? And how did a woman end up on safari in Africa in 1925, shooting animals with motion picture cameras? We're your hosts, Daria and Jess. In this episode of Nature Reconstructed, we tackle the revolutionary films of Martin and Osa Johnson that led to the first nature documentaries, the problematic practices that they took to create these documentaries, and whether or not the Johnsons single-handedly ended the golden age of taxidermy. This is Here You Are, Season 2, Nature Reconstructed, Episode 6, The Woman Who Married Adventure.
2: Osa Lady was born on March 14, 1894, in a small brick cottage in Chanute, Kansas. She was raised with the same Victorian expectations of all girls in rural America, to marry, settle down, and raise a family. But not much is known about her childhood. In her autobiography, I Married Adventure, She writes plenty about Martin's childhood, but nothing about her own. Really, her story in her own autobiography doesn't begin until she meets Martin. Martin and Osa met in 1910 when Osa was just 16 years old. Osa was still in high school and her main worries in life were whether or not she would get the lead role in her choir's next show. Martin was nine years older than Osa, already 25 and working in his motion picture house, The Snark, in Independence, Kansas. Osa had traveled to the big city to visit her childhood friend, Gail Hamilton, but she stayed for Martin. They had a whirlwind romance, and their first date started with a chariot race. Not that kind of chariot race. According to Osa, chariot racing was a popular activity for young people in Kansas.
3: I came upon a group getting ready to do a mixed chariot race. The name for this is really pretty accurately descriptive. Two boys, fast, sure skaters, are harnessed together. They're the horses. Straps from their harness like reins go back to a third skater, a girl who's the driver in the mixed races. Six chariots were to start out, three abreast. As the chariots were moving into position, I saw one of the drivers swerve and bend over her right skate. Then she shook her head. Something was wrong. The band was blowing another fanfare. With a crazy and unaccountable impulse, I darted forward and told the girl I'd take her place. She looked startled, but gave me the reins. There was a roll of drums, a blank cartridge was fired, and we were off.
2: The race didn't go well for Osa, and she ended in a ditch along the track. A crowd descended on her with Martin at the head. Upset and concerned, Martin pulled Osa out and led her away, ignoring her claims that she could still finish the race. Still, despite their disagreements over how a proper lady should act in public, Martin proposed to Osa the next week, and they were married a month later. Osa might have been raised to be a well-behaved wife, but their marriage was anything but typical. Martin had spent his early 20s traveling and making films for his theater. Once they were married, Osa went along with him on these journeys. But with her own experience performing in choirs, Osa wasn't content to remain a traveling companion forever. Eventually, she became Martin's partner in film. The Johnsons' early films, which were either not feature-length or are lost today, portrayed fishing with dynamite in the Solomon Islands and the life of people in the South Sea. These films, which were considered by some to be realistic and unbiased observations of exotic life, attracted Carl Akeley and his friend George Eastman by extension. The Johnsons soon received funding from Akeley through the American Museum of Natural History and Eastman personally, to film a feature-length safari drama Simba, King of the Beasts.
1: The ensuing picture Simba is the high mark of attainment in the cinematographic recording of Adventure in Africa, the classic land of mystery, thrills, and darksome savage drama through all the days of history. The pages of African annals are bright with the names of Livingstone, Stanley, Duchayu, Akeley, Roosevelt, and Rainey. And now Martin and Osa Johnson by this film record unfold a triumph that is both a sequel and a climax. You will see thrills without end, but no screen can ever record the desperate chances which some of the most peaceful scenes of this production entail. Here is the astonishing record of the most remarkable African expedition, Simba.
2: Shown next is the stunning motion picture of African wildlife that had never before been captured on camera, while Martin and Osa tell the story of their safari through text cards and B-roll footage. Like modern-day nature documentaries, the Johnsons like to tell a series of stories by personifying the animals they shot and trying to explain their actions to the audience, especially by giving names to the animals, such as the Tembo family of elephants and, as in the title, Simba, King of the Beasts. But it wasn't just for the animals that the Johnsons came up with these stories throughout the film. Native people, too, were subjected to this treatment.
1: The natives of our country were a pastoral race of half-savage blacks. Here was the age-old story of man emerging from savagery.
2: So it seems that the whole of Africa, people, animals, and all, were an exotic oddity to the Johnsons worth exhibiting through their film, but not exactly exhibiting in the same way as any nature documentary we'd see today. The Johnson's documentaries reveal deep-seated issues of race and class under the light-hearted umbrella of imperialism. In one image, Osa Johnson herself kneels beside the carcass of a dead lion, a rifle in her hand. Osa smiles at the camera, but she is not the only figure in the image, and the other one certainly isn't smiling. Behind her kneels a native man dressed in his own traditional headdress, acting like a prop in Osa's scene of exotic Africa. This kind of representation of native peoples is unfortunately common in the Johnson's documentaries too. The Johnsons treat natives much like children. In her autobiography I Married Adventure, Osa writes,
3: We went ashore taking with us our usual trade stuff and cameras, but these strange natives showed little interest either in us or our gifts. There were possibly 30 men, women and children about the small village when we landed, and they stared at us, but without either fear or curiosity. In most primitives, the instinct to live is strong. But these people appeared to be wholly without even this impulse. Their apathy showed in the flabbiness of their bodies, the decay of their four or five huts, the disintegration of their idols. There were no signs anywhere of either ceremonies or celebration. Mental and physical decay lay heavy here, and saddened, I drew close to Martin. His sensitive mouth showed that he was affected exactly as I was by the hopeless lives of these people.
2: Natives are also presented as savages. In their 1930 film, Across the World with Mr. and Mrs. Johnson, they present a group of natives they called the Salomons in traditional garb, waving guns and spears. Martin Johnson narrates the scene.
1: When we first arrived here, O.C. naturally just coming out of civilization, didn't think very much of these savages. Of course, I had seen them before and I knew what to expect. I knew that they were cannibals and I knew that they were headhunters. At the same time, I had sort of a feeling of children. They're childlike and uh, uh, really happy at times, although of course they are as cannibalistic as any people in the world. They have all kinds of peculiar ornaments in their noses and their ears. And some of them show that they've been in fights, although the cannibal is really never a hard fighter. He's uh, a coward. The way
2: the Johnsons captured animals on film was just as exploitative. The Johnsons and the team of natives they hired provoked lions by setting bait, throwing rocks, and blowing pepper at them in order to get interesting film. They even began interacting directly with the wildlife, sometimes so much so that you are not seeing nature in its true form, but rather nature reacting to the imperialism of man, almost like you'd see in a zoo, such as this elephant experience.
1: One day we were sitting by an ancient elephant trail hoping something would happen.
2: Upon spotting an elephant, Martin starts rolling the camera. Osa picks up her giant rifle.
1: Annoyed at finding us in the way, he turned off. And to his disgust, there stood another camera. He tried again, and there was Osa.
2: The Johnson's cameras now have the elephant surrounded.
1: He turned this way and that way, puzzled a little, annoyed a lot. This had been his trail for nearly a century, but Osa went looking for action. She found it.
2: The Johnsons presented their travels as innocent acts of filming nature for a public audience, but they were truly an act of exploitative imperialism. They presented nature not as it truly was, but as they wanted to capture it.
0: So, how does taxidermy fit into all this? It can be argued that documentary replaces diorama in the realm of animal preservation. In our current day, nature documentaries are widely accepted in society as meaningful representations of the natural world. They maintain a significant space in our culture. What we don't often encounter anymore is taxidermy. So that kind of leads to the question, Did the Johnsons single-handedly end the golden age of taxidermy? It certainly feels like film has almost entirely occupied the cultural space that taxidermy once inhabited. Is this ironic, considering that taxidermy and film initially worked together to create a cultural narrative about natural spaces? In terms of
4: what's going on with films of that time period, the very notion of trying to preserve something is actually pretty fraught with colonial discourses, with a lot of other things, but also with this idea of preserving something that's already dead. This is Dr. June Huang. I'm an associate professor of German in modern language and cultures and also in film and media studies. Mary Louise Pratt talks about ethnography and ethnographic films as preservation of the the dead so that you look at them as already a lost time or out of time or somehow not part of the the historical moment so that they're ahistorical and they're already lost and the, our job is then to preserve them. So in some ways, a lot of these nature films and ethnographic films are doing a
0: form of taxidermy themselves. Rather than look at stilly animals in a reproduced environment as you would in a taxidermy diorama, documentary presents living animals in their natural environment, not in a romanticized picturesque representation of that environment, or do they?
4: There's no such thing as a true representation, right? So a film, a documentary is always an interpretation. Pretty much any historical account, anything, is always influenced by various discourses, by various biases.
0: There's no way in which something is just a straight retelling. So this begs a question that will continue to shape our interpretation of nature Reconstructed. Is there space for taxidermy alongside the advent of documentary film? Or does the film remove the need for taxidermied animals and natural history dioramas altogether? Here you are is a podcast created by students at the University of Rochester.
2: This episode was produced by Daria Valova and Jess Hunsaker. Our engineer was Rick Carl. The music used on this episode was performed by Lobo Loco, Gillicuddy, and Lee Rosevere. We'd also like to thank Dr. Jun Huang for her interview, as well as our voice actors, Ewan Shannon and Rachel Coons. Our theme music is by Joshua Copperman. The coordinating producers for this season of Here You Are are Maya Lepard and Liam Gussius. The executive producers are Thomas Fleischman and Steven Ressner. Here You Are is made possible by the Teaching Innovation Grant at the University of Rochester. Be sure to check out the other episodes of Here You Are Season 2, Nature Reconstructed, at hereyouare.com. Thanks for listening.